week. We're going to continue with that over the next couple of weeks. And uh, just to kind of recap some of what we learned uh, last week, uh, we learned uh, that the book of Esther takes place during the reign of Xerxes, also named Ahasuerus, depending on which translation you're using. Um, Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire. Um, his father Darius had made war against the Greeks, and uh, Xerxes attempted to uh, revenge his father's defeat, and Xerxes himself was defeated as well. And in the year 483 B.C., he made his way back to um, Persia, uh, where his, uh, well, actually in 483, he deposed his queen, and then in 480, he came back, um, met up with Esther, and the two of them fell in love, and he married Esther as his new queen of Persia. I've got a map for you here, and you can see the Persian Empire where the little star is. That's where the capital city of Susa was, kind of modern-day Iraq, as much of the empire stretched from in the east India all the way to uh, Ethiopia and North Africa. And so uh, that's kind of the setting. Uh, we also learned last week that uh, Esther was the grandmother of um, King David, I don't know if any of y'all picked up on that last night, last week, but yeah, she's not. Um, Ruth was actually the grandmother of King David, and um, I knew that, but that's what came out of my mouth. And uh, so, but Esther um, ended up being uh, the queen of Persia. Um, she had grown up as a little girl, um, and and her parents had passed away. She was uh, shipped off to Uncle or Mordecai, who had become her adoptive father, and uh, Mordecai uh, raised her, and she was raised with a cultured. Uh, upbringing there in this capital city, um, and then eventually uh, events transpired where she became the queen of Persia. So that was last week. This week we jump to the next part of the story where uh, Esther finds herself right in the crosshairs of who's going to help the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people are being threatened by this new guy named Haman, um, and so we'll find out uh, what happens there. So our text today comes from Esther chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there or follow along with us on the screen. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Esther chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. We'll read through verse 16. Here we go. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So we're going to um, come back to that part in the story here in just a little bit. But I want to do a little bit more um, background development um, by jumping back to chapter 3 and verse 1. So we'll see why Esther um, is uh, finding herself in this situation uh, in the first place of feeling like she has to stand in the gap for the Jewish people. So beginning Esther chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Xerxes promotes this fellow by the name of Haman, and uh, he becomes the prime minister, remember, of the most powerful nation in the world. 
Um, and so that's a lot of authority, that's a lot of power that Haman, being the second in command, has at his disposal. But in addition to pointing out that Haman becomes a prime minister, the Bible also points out Haman's uh, lineage, his, his ancestry. And it says that he was an Agagite and that his he was the son of Hamadatha. Now, an Agagite refers to somebody who was in the bloodline of King Agag. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. I think we got a map for you here. You can see the little red star, and that's marking out the territory of the Amalekites. The Amalekites uh, were a group of people, tribes, people that lived south of Israel, um, and their war and their aggression toward the Jewish people goes way back to the time when Moses was leading the Israelites wandering around in the desert. In fact, it was the Amalekites, as, they, as the Israelites were wandering around in the desert, uh, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites numerous times, um, decimating some of their population and, and really uh, hurting uh, the community. And so because of that, God told Moses, I'm not going to forget what these Amalekites have done. And so he instructed Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 19, he said, middle of the verse, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek and the Amalekites from under heaven. Now you skip forward 250 years to the time of Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and Saul finds himself with responsibility to exact this uh, this edict that God had made back to Moses some 250 years before. Um, he uh, God tells Saul, he says, 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote the, to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Skip down to verse 7. God instructs, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. But get this, verse 8, And he, Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. So Saul was not supposed to do that. He was supposed to utterly destroy all the Amalekites. Maybe Saul wanted to bring the king back to the palace and kind of jeer at him and tease him and talk to him about how he had been defeated and, and uh, pour salt in the wound. I'm not sure. But it says, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag. Um, so around 1230 B.C., God said to Moses, we're going to have to do something about these Amalekites. I want for you to utterly wipe them out. And around uh, 1030 B.C., God said to Saul, you have the responsibility of carrying out what we had intended uh, some hundreds of years ago to wipe out these Amalekites, leave no one alive. And then in 480 B.C., at the time of Esther, uh, King Agag's descendant, a guy by the name of Haman, ascends to the position of prime minister of the most powerful empire in the world, with a desire for revenge, a 500-year desire for revenge. Um, all right, back to our story. Esther chapter. Now, hang on to that because that's going to become important a little bit later on, as we see. Esther chapter three and verse two. It says, "All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, the Israelite, the Jew, did not bow down or pay homage." You say, "Well, why didn't Mordecai bow down to um, Haman? What, what was his issue? Did he, because, did he know he's an Amalekite and didn't want to bow down to the Amalekites?" Well, no, that wasn't his reason. The reason was because of commandments number one and two of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one said, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, Mordecai is a Jewish person. And commandment number two said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down to them or serve them, for I am a jealous God. So for the Jewish people to bow down to something other than God Almighty was considered one of the most egregious sins that a person could commit. And so Mordecai was not going to bow down to this guy, Haman. And so that's why he wouldn't do it. Verse five, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Get this, verse 6. 
but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai. That is, he didn't just want to go after Mordecai. He wanted to go after Mordecai and all the Jewish people that Mordecai represented. Um, so, you know, and so it says, so they made known to him the people of Mordecai, and so Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. So here is Haman's chance, right? He realizes that I've now got all these Jewish people under my power, under my authority. I'm in a position where I can do something to them. And so he hatches a plan, because he can't just go and kill off hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people across the Persian Empire. He has to come up with a plan. He has to come up with a reason, make sure Xerxes signs off on this. And so that's what he begins to do, to plot this out. Um, and so uh, verse 8 says, When Haman went to King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and said, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different than those of every other people, and they, don't keep, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So in other words, uh, Haman comes to Xerxes and says, look, there's these people who are living inside of your empire, this vast empire, and these people are just not getting with the program. We need to do something to get rid of these people. And so he says, verse 9, If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, which is a massive amount of money, into the hands of those who have, charged, who have charge of the king's business, and they may put it into the king's treasury. So here's Haman's plan. His plan is, we are going to pillage the people that we go and attack, these Jewish people. And we're going to take from them all of their wealth. We're going to take from them all of their valuables. And we're going to turn that into silver talents for you, king. And I'm going to make sure that you get 10,000 talents of silver put in your treasury um, as a result of this war that we're going to wage against these Jewish people. And the, so basically his appeal to him is on the basis of money. That, you know, you just got done with a war. It was very expensive against the Greeks. We need to shore up your, your, your funds, your finances. And so the king buys into this and his plan works. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Now notice there, again, the text points out who Haman's family is. They're pointing out his lineage, that he's connected back to this king Agag that Saul had spared all those years ago. Verse 11, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So we have Haman um, leading an effort now to exterminate the Jewish people. Again, a 500-year-old desire for revenge. Um, Israel is literally on the brink now of extermination. Um, all of the Jewish people, we would assume, most all of the Jewish people, are within the boundaries of the Persian Empire. And he's sending out an edict, we're going to see this in a second, that's going to wipe out every last one of them. Now, I think it's important to stop here for a moment and note that this is not some sort of random event. We can see clearly the hand of Satan himself at work in what's happening. Um, I mean, a 500-year-old grudge? Really? I mean, who's, who remembers that? I mean, I don't remember something that happened to me a year ago or maybe even last week. Um, somebody cuts you off in traffic and then you're on to the next thing, right? Um, 500 year old? I mean, let bygones be bygones. Who remembers that? Well, Haman remembered that. Um, and so in large part because there's an evil force that is pushing Haman, that is compelling Haman to do what he's doing and the actions that he's taking. Um, think about it. God had promised that the Messiah was going to come from the Jewish people. 
And uh, if, if, if Haman can, uh, if Satan can get the Jewish people destroyed, then there'd be no Messiah. There would be no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, then there would be no death on the cross. And if there's no death on the cross, then there's no plan of salvation. If there's no plan of salvation, then there's no way for you and I get, to get to heaven. Friends, Satan was in this up to his elbows. Certainly that was his plan. Make, make no mistake about it. Look at verse 13. Letters or dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews. Young and old, women and children, in one day, on a single day, this was going to happen, which is, would be the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, the, to plunder their goods. So again, that's Haman's plan. He's got it all lined up. On this one day, the 13th day of Adar, uh, the Jewish people are to, or all the, the leaders of all the provinces are to wage war against the Jewish people and utterly wipe them out and desolate them. Uh, genocide against the Jewish people. That's what is in view. All right, well, that's our treatment of this um, text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. And as we go to the part of the story that we read earlier, we discover really the difference that this makes to you and me. So let's take a look at that second half of the story. Um, as we, we know, as we continue reading this story, we learn that Esther is confronted with a choice. And it's a choice that will put her own life in danger. It's a choice of how she is going to use this position, how she is going to use the power that's granted her as the queen of Persia, how she's going to use the influence that she has. Um, will she just merely stay silent? Will she keep her mouth shut? Will she not hope that nobody figures out that she's a Jewish person also? And that because of the edict that all Jewish people will die, that maybe she'll skirt under that one and nobody will find out. Mordecai? I don't know Mordecai. Who are you talking about? Or will she take a risk? Will she tell the king that she is a Jew and that these are her people? Will she stand in the gap for them? Will she stand for them? Let's see what happens. Mordecai gets word to Esther about this decree. He advises her, you need to go talk to your husband. And uh, Esther says, well, it's not that simple. And so she informs him, verse 11, of the rule or the law in the land, which says, Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know this rule, that if any man or woman, great or small, goes to the king inside the, king, the inner court without being called, that that's one of the laws of the land here, that if you do that, you will be put to death. And the only exception is that if the king extends his golden scepter to you and shows you mercy. And I can't count on that he's going to show me mercy. Um, I just can't pop in on the king like that. And so Esther's contemplating this, and she knows that something has to be done. She knows that the Jewish people are under threat. Potentially her own life's under threat. Certainly Mordecai's life is under threat. And so uh, she knows something has to be done, but she's thinking in her mind, is this the right strategy? Is this the right tactic? Is this the right step for us to take, for me to go and approach the king and tell him what's happened here? So Mordecai says, verse 14, for if you keep silent, now, by the way, there's a little back and forth that goes on in chapter 4 through some couriers. They're not having a direct conversation with one another. Mordecai writes some things down. Letter gets sent. Letter comes back to Mordecai from Esther. And that's kind of how this conversation unfolds. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jewish people. Now, I love this statement. 
It's a statement of Mordecai recognizing that God is indeed going to keep his promises. God has made a promise that a Messiah will come through the Jewish people. And so he recognizes that even if Haman executes on his plan, God will figure out a way for a remnant of the Jewish people to remain so that the Messiah can come. God is going to be good to keep his word. Um, And he says, end of verse 14, he says, perhaps, who knows though, it may be that you have come to the kingdom, that you have been raised up as to this position as queen for such a time as this. There it is. Esther, this is what you coming to Susa, perhaps, was all about. Perhaps this is why you were raised with the, uh, the refined um, upbringing. Perhaps this is why you were brought to the house of Mordecai. Perhaps uh, this is what all of this was for, for such a time as this. You know, sometimes in life, I think we need to pause and we need to ask that question. God, why am I going through what I'm going through? Why are the experiences that I've had been my experiences? Why am I in the position that you've put me in, the talents that you've given me? Is it perhaps that there was a greater purpose beyond just my life that these things are happening? Friends, please do not discount the importance of this question. God is just as much at work in your life as he was in the life of Esther. Hundreds of thousands of lives may not be at stake for the decisions that we make. Perhaps one is, perhaps a dozen, perhaps a hundred. Perhaps there are people for you to reach that God has put you in the position and given you the experiences that he's given you or allowed you to have so that you could have an influence in those people's lives. Perhaps there are people that God has for you to protect, people for you to provide for, people for you to instruct and to guide and to lead and to influence. Could it be that God has you where he has you for such a time as this? Something for you to think about. You know, Esther thought about it. And here's the answer that she came up with. Here's what she decided to do. Middle of verse 15, she said, after contemplating all the potential avenues that she could take, she said, I know what I need to do. I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, when Esther decided that this is indeed what God had meant for her all along, that God raised her up to be queen of Persia for this very moment, that this was God's will for her life. Friends, when she decided that that was the deal, that was why she was in the position she was in, she said, I'm going to do it no matter the cost. I think it's important that we acknowledge Esther's words, if I perish, I perish, not as words of pessimism, not as words of despair, These are not words of cynicism. Rather, these are words of hopeful submission to God's will for her life. She did these things willingly, gladly, to do whatever God had put in front of her to do. Esther illustrates one of the key fruits of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. A true disciple of Jesus is a person who puts God's will first in their life, regardless of the personal cost. Their motto in life is, if I perish doing God's will, then I perish 
doing God's will regardless of the cost. If my friends don't want to be my friends anymore, then I'm going to do God's will and I'll go it alone. If doing God's will in my life uh, causes me to get fired, then I will do God's will and I'll get fired. Whatever the cost, if it's God's will, I'll do it. You know, Esther was not the only person in history to live this way. You look through the Bible and you see example of, after example after example of people um, in Scripture. For example, the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Paul's heading to Jerusalem. He knows there's probably some bad things that are going to happen to him there. And here's what Paul says. He says, verse 22, And behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained or compelled by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then Paul says in the next chapter, Acts 21 and verse 13, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? He says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, this is the code I live by. It is Esther's code, and that is, if I perish, I perish, but if I perish, I'm going to perish doing God's will. Friends, a true disciple of Jesus Christ has the mindset that obeying God's will is the highest issue in my life, and I'm doing it regardless of the personal cost. You know, back in the 1950s, uh, five college students became convinced that it was God's will for them to go and share Christ with a group of unreached indigenous people in Ecuador called the Aka Indians. One of them was named Jim Elliott, and another was named Nate Saint. And these young men prayed and sought God's will for their life. God placed on them a huge burden for these Aka Indians in central Ecuador, and they were an unreached people group living in the bush far from civilization. There were reports of shell oil workers who had gone into this area exploring for oil and how the workers had been attacked. Um, they, the Aka Indians had befriended them a little bit. Then the next thing you know, they turn on them, and even some of the shell oil workers were killed. One of them said, they are killers. Never trust them. They'll appear to be your friend, and then they'll turn on you. But Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and their three friends were convinced, however, that God's will uh, for their life was to go and try to reach the Aka people for Christ. Nate Saint said, and I quote, As we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? Here's his answer to that self-preservation question. He writes, During World War II, we were taught to recognize that in order to obtain our objective, we had to be willing to be expendable. Yet, when the Lord Jesus asks us to pay this price for world evangelization, we often do not answer him. End of quote. Jim Elliott added, If that's the way God wants it to be, I'm ready to die for the salvation of the Aucas. And then he said these famous words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain in heaven what he cannot lose. End of quote. So the five of these men went to Ecuador. And on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and their three friends were all killed by the Aka Indians that they had gone to help. Search teams found their bodies floating in the river, and to add insult to injury, they had been lanced to death, and the lances that they had been stabbed with, the Aka Indians had tied the gospel tracks to those, uh, just to make a statement. 
that, hey, we don't have anything to do with what you folks are about. However, that's not the end of the story. Um, because Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, after praying about it for just a couple of weeks, became convinced that God's will for her was to go back to the Aka Indians, the very people who killed her husband. And the other four wives agreed that, yes, this is indeed God's will for our lives. And so all those wives, remember they had children. All those wives went to go to the Aka Indians to share Christ with them. And the Aka Indians were so blown away that these women would do this, that instead of killing them, they listened to what they had to say. And now, 65 years later, the Aka Indians are one of the most spiritually committed and most thoroughly evangelized Indian tribes of South America. In fact, one of the Aka men who took part in the attack and actually killed Nate Saint eventually became a preacher and an elder in the Aka church. His name was Menkai, and he said of the change that he saw in his tribe, he said, this is the before and the after, he said, before we knew Christ, we acted badly, very badly, until they brought us God's carvings, meaning the Bible. Then seeing his carvings and following his good trail, now we live happily and in peace. Minkai has become especially close with Nate Saint's son, Steve, who lived in the tribe for many years. I've got a picture of the two men here for you. Um, because Minkai had killed Steve's father, he felt a real connection, uh, a, a desire to want to be his dad for him. Um, a kinship arose between these two men, and Minkai adopted Steve as his tribal son, obeying God's will, no matter the cost. Friends, this is the mindset that God is looking for. And so in closing, allow me to raise a question. It's a question for reflection. And here's my question. Where is God asking me to obey him, but I'm hesitating. Where is God asking me to obey him, but I'm hesitating? Maybe God is asking you to return something you stole. Maybe God is asking you to seek forgiveness. Maybe God is asking you to oppose an unethical behavior. Maybe he's asking you to end an unhealthy relationship. Or maybe God is asking you to share Christ with someone. Friends, I don't know what God is asking you to do. But if he's asking and we're hesitating, I can promise you, I can tell you why. It's because for you to do what God's asking you to do, it's going to cost you something, perhaps something big. The price we may pay may be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The price we pay may be popularity. It may be a promotion. It may be the loss of a friend or becoming alienated from family. And the truth is, friends, obedience to God may cost you much, much more than just those things. Let's be honest. But the question for us is not, what is it going to cost us? The question for us is, are we going to do what God asks us to do, no matter the cost? And so I'll leave you with Esther's words. Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word today, to be inspired by the story of a young lady who was willing to put it all on the line. And Lord, so many have followed in her footsteps. And Lord, these are the people that, um, that accomplish things that have eternal significance. God, we want our lives to be more than just what we can gather unto ourselves 
but rather, Lord, we want our lives to have a meaning beyond the grave. Lord, if there are things that you're calling us to do, some actions you want us to take, God, may we say, like Esther, Lord, if it, even though it costs me everything, I will follow you. Jesus, we just thank you for this, for these words that bring life, that bring purpose to our every breath. And now as we consider your broken body and your shed blood, again, Lord, we are thankful uh, that it is the price that you paid, your willingness to do the Father's will, uh, even in the face of great suffering. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning in this time of communion. Minister to us. Give us courage. Help us to say yes. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.